Welcome to K-Drama School. I'm your host, Grace Jung, and class is now in session. Dr. Jung, I hope that you are doing well these days. You appeared rather down the last episode of the podcast, but I hope that the conversation with your friend from Syria gave you a boost. I found it a very interesting and deep conversation. I am actually writing to you to request an explanation or your comments on the nature of fandom in South Korea amid the Kim Sun-ho scandal. Why is South Korean society so moralistic and uncharitable when it comes to celebrities? Is it the same for politicians? I wonder. I watched and enjoyed Seaside Cha-Cha-Cha, more my type of K-drama than Squid Game, which I will not watch because it is kind of dark, although I actively read all the critiques and comments in order to understand why it has been such a hit. Even here in Ghana, I saw a comment about it on Twitter. Anyway, I'd very much appreciate some comments from you on the Kim Sun-ho matter. I think he did not treat his ex-girlfriend well, and he probably is a jerk in real life, but... question mark, question mark. I enjoy your podcast. If there is a good study on fandom in South Korea, please recommend it on the show. I wish you well. Hugs from your biggest Ajima fan, Mansa Pra. Thank you, Mansa, for your lovely email. And uh, thank you for um, being so thoughtful. Yes, I, I do feel better. My conversation with uh, Misho Shakur was definitely helpful. Uh, I think all these conversations that I have with my guests help me immensely. So um, thank you for your kind words. And thank you for uh, bringing up the Kim Sun-ho scandal. Um, yeah, honestly, like I don't really read the news very much these days. I don't read the news mostly for my own self-preservation. And um, I missed a couple of very big things, apparently, by avoiding the news and avoiding Twitter. Uh, I first did not realize that Alec Baldwin had accidentally shot and killed a cinematographer on the set of his current production in Mexico. I mean, I think it's horrendous what happened. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what went wrong, but those kinds of accidents definitely happen on television and film sets. Uh, when people die on these production sets, it's really a massive tragedy. And um, I don't know, I just, I guess I just send um, my best wishes to the cinematographer's family. And I also send my, um, my thoughts to Alec Baldwin and his family. I mean, of course, Alec Baldwin did not set out to kill this person. Of course, this was a freak and terrible accident. And I'm sure that trauma of having accidentally taken somebody's life will stay with him till the day, till the day he dies. But with all that said, I think that's a good place to start with this whole Kim Sun-ho scandal. I was not aware of this scandal until I had a conversation with uh, another K-drama fan um, and I was doing a, an interview with her. Um, she was interviewing me for her podcast, and we had just spoken about it a few days ago this past week. But 
I'll address it here and now since I got this letter from Mansa. So Kim Sun Ho is a he's a young man. He's 35 years old, and his career dates back to about 2009 when he was a theater actor in Seoul, and he started to become more of a household name with that drama startup and of course with this latest show uh hometown cha-cha-cha the scandal was essentially this uh kim sono's ex-girlfriend went online on a public forum and posted uh a long sort of um expose on her relationship with Kim Sun-ho, and she she maintained his anonymity to an extent by saying this is actor Kim, uh, but people somehow pieced it together and said it's Kim Sun-ho. So I suppose this uh, woman included enough context clues in there so that netizens can eventually piece these things together. The bulk of the the letter, which I have not read, I just kind of picked up bits and pieces from the things that people have told me and from the news articles that I read. But the bulk of it was that uh, Kim Sun-ho mistreated this young woman when they were in a relationship together and that this young woman became pregnant with his child at one point and that Kim Sun-ho pressured her to get an abortion and that when she did get an abortion, he eventually, uh, he changed, his attitude towards her changed, his affections, I suppose, had withered and they subsequently broke up. Here's the thing. My position on this whole thing is that this is not my business. What this woman went through is sad. And whenever anybody is in a relationship and there are tensions and there are conflicts, it is painful to everybody involved. And yeah, I mean, if I were to look back and see my ex-boyfriends or my ex-partners flourishing in their lives, I mean, would I feel resentful and bitter? Let me tell you the truth. I am a victim of numerous moments of sexual trauma in my life. And trigger warning to all of you, if you have not been privy to my podcast, I might talk about trauma a lot. So uh, I've been victim to sexual trauma multiple times in my life since my youth, okay? All the, most of the people, yeah, almost every single person that I've dated in my life who, uh, who caused in part some of that sexual trauma, all of them are um doing very well in their lives from on the surface i mean they're doctors the majority i dated a lot of medical school people a lot of them are doctors and uh one is a filmmaker and he's very he's well known and uh you know i if i wanted to i could have gone on twitter and exposed them via me too i could have done that uh there were even people that i was not in a intimate relationship with who caused um, assault, like who caused sexual trauma and hurt and assault in my life. There are people who I've worked for and worked with who have done this as well. And they are people with prestigious uh, status and positions. I could have done that, but I chose not to. And the reason for that is because 
that's my business. And I don't think going online and exposing their names and faces and their careers will help me to recuperate from that trauma, not in the least. That does not mean that talking about it is incorrect. I mean, I do talk about it. I'm talking about it right now. And I've talked about it in my other episodes um, when I talked about like ex-partners who behaved inappropriately with me. Uh, But I think there's a difference between exposing their identity, especially when they are A-list celebrities, and uh, being discreet about it and making making the story my own personal story rather than make a story about them to take down them. I mean, what is the intent? Is there malicious intent? Or is this really, is the intention to find catharsis and healing by processing and talking about it, right? And that's where the whole Me Too movement sort of had this nebulous structure that were these two sides to it on the one hand you have the rage which is very valid valid rage because rage comes from pain rage comes from agony and suffering so that's where anger comes from of course that catharsis has to be there the release has to be there but then there was this whole other side where there was this malicious intent to take down people from the top ranks now to some extent that was necessary. People like Harvey Weinstein should not have been in power, okay? The fact that so many people turned a blind eye to his uh, sexual assault of these numerous women is, you know, that's incomprehensible. Same goes for people like Bill Cosby, okay? But then that started to really spread and it just became more of a how do I say this without sounding like a right-wing cliche, which is what I am not. I'm trying to be as diplomatic and compassionate and feminist and uh, liberal about this as I possibly can. It became more about taking down people and taking away their jobs and their livelihoods. That's what it became about. And I mentioned this in my podcast over and over and over again. But I keep bringing back what Loretta Ross said. She said, as a liberal, as a progressive, have you taken the time to ask yourself, what is it that you're fighting for? Because we all know what it is that we're fighting against. Of course, we're fighting against misogyny. We're fighting against transphobia. We're fighting against homophobia. We're fighting against uh, colonial like colonization we're fighting against racism we're fighting against uh patriarchy okay that's a big list of things we're fighting against what are we fighting for what is the vision that we have what is the imagined future that is awaiting for us as we're progressing towards that goal what is that goal what does it look like right what are our expectations and for me my expectation is for everybody to have human rights recognized. I think part of human rights is the ability to work and live a life of happiness, all right? And the thing is, every single person on earth who has lived a few years 
has made some mistakes that they regret. I know I have. I know I definitely have. And uh, I have to confront myself all the time and time and time again, forgive myself every single day, moment by moment. Okay. All of us live with that. This, this little thing, the little voice in our head, that's always putting us down and screaming at us and yelling at us. Part of the reason why that voice gets loud is because we have not encountered self-forgiveness because we don't know how to do it. The only way that you could forgive somebody who has harmed you is when you can forgive yourself for the things that you've done to yourself and to others. And there's no easy answer to that. I mean, I guess I could share my answers to that because I had to confront it, you know. I did a one full day of meditation and um, a lot of crying and a lot of self-reflection where I confronted my past demons and I sat down with myself and I had to really um, forgive myself, forgive the young person in me and forgive my past self of of the of the times that I let myself down you know I realized that I was blaming myself for a lot of the bad things that happened to me and that includes some of that sexual trauma that includes a lot of physical abuse um you know I'm technically an unemployed professor I'm technically an unemployed teacher and philosopher right but I I have taught students there have been numerous times when I let my students down, many, many students. Um, and part of the reason why it's so hard for me to say that I like teaching is because I've had so many bad teachers in my life. I went to nursery school uh, in South Korea, in Busan, in the early 90s. And back then they used to hit us. The teachers used to beat us. Right. So I was like four or five years old and the teachers would brutally beat the shit out of us. This uh, went on on a number of occasions. This was normalized back then. Um, I also suffered child abuse from my own parents. You know, corporal punishment was a regular thing in my household. It kept going until in my teen years, I basically fought back and I said, you're not going to hit me ever again. I mean, it just I literally had to physically grow up in size to size up my parents and be like, if you hit me again, I'm just going to hit you back, you know. And uh, I learned that strategy from another Korean American Unni. She was older than me, right? Like she was in college and I was like in high school and I was like, you know, it's really fucking embarrassing that my parents still hit me sometimes and I'm a teenager. And she said to me, the next time your mom hits you, just hit her back. <laughs> and that shit is going to stop. And she was right. That shit did stop. I remember like I, I was like mouthing off one time and my mom threw a remote control at me, which fucking hurt. So I picked it up and I threw it right back at her. And she, my mom's look of just shock and fear, right? Like, oh, she's not a little kid anymore. She could fight back. Like that moment clicked with her. And and do I forgive my parents for beating the shit out of me? Do I forgive those teachers for beating the shit out of me when I was a kid? A part of me, an absolute yes. An absolute yes. They're forgiven because they're just a product of their times and their society. Their parents beat the shit out of them. Their teachers beat the shit out of them. Of course, they're going to beat the shit out of their students and their kids, right? Would I beat the shit out of my children and my students? Of course not. Of course not, but it comes out in other ways. Those kinds of things, it's not about them. It's about me 
It's about me struggling with self-forgiveness for having been in those situations and allowing it to happen, which is like a ridiculous concept because I was a child and I couldn't do anything about it, right? So it's like, again, that question of where, what is there to forgive? Where does the forgiveness, where does this word forgiveness even fall into place in this fucking matrix? It doesn't, there's no place for it. And yet the expectation is there, right? So when I went on my mushroom trip at El Matador Beach uh, and I asked myself, how do I forgive? The answer that came to me was, what is there to forgive? Huh? If, if nothing was to, for you to be blamed, if you were not to be blamed for anything, and if all the things that happened to you, you know the reasons why they happened to you. It's because whatever, whatever suffering that person encounters, they're going to project that right back to society if they did not process it, if they not, if they did not encounter it and deal with it, then they're just gonna mistreat others the way that they've been mistreated. And that is in a return a mistreatment of themselves, right? I know this. I know this fully and I understand it completely. If I know this, then I know that nothing that ever happens to me is personal, right? No harm that ever comes to me is ever personal is their own fuck up. It's their own fucking hang up, huh? I've had ex-boyfriends who were unbelievably horrendous to me. I mean, if I detailed them, you would all be shocked. You would be shocked that a person of my of my being, like how fucking loud and confident and, you know, know-it-all I can be, right? And how how I'm a comedian and how I'm a writer and I'm a creator and artist and all that. You would be shocked to know the things that I put up with in my past, in my youth. And yet I did. I did because that's who I was back then. It's not who I am now. I am more empowered now. I have more knowledge now. I have more wisdom now. I know how to take care of myself better. And each day that goes by, as I'm taking care of myself more and more, as I carefully select who I let into my life and who I set boundaries with, right? That shows me that I am healing, that I am in the process of healing. I know that me going online and shaming these people publicly is not going to lead to any good. I think at the end of the day, everybody has a choice, you know, like if this young woman really wanted to keep her child, she could have, you know, she could have. Uh, Kim Sun-ho is not some fascist dictator in a country. Like, I don't think he has that power. This, I, I, I think it's just a shame that this woman did not feel empowered to have said, no, like, I want to keep this child. If that was her intention, if she really wanted that child. Right. If she really wanted that child, then she would have she would have kept it and had it. And of course, subsequently deal with the fact that she's a single mother in, in out of wedlock, most likely too young to be a mother, all of that stuff. Right. I mean, that is really a reflection of the society. I mean, South Korean society does not make it possible for a young woman to be a single mother and to live a happy and free and supported life. So really, is this Kim Sono's fault? Is Kim Sono the sole person to blame here? Or are people like Kim Sono and this young woman a product of their society that is so heteronormative and so patriarchal and so misogynistic that they make these circumstances where people feel trapped, huh?
Perhaps if even abortion wasn't so stigmatized in South Korea, this would not be an issue. Gotta understand, South Korea didn't make abortion legal until very, very, very recently. I'm talking the last like couple of years, discussions of abortion becoming a legal thing in Korea was coming to rise. Do you think that there weren't millions of women who wanted to have an abortion at multiple points in their lives, but just couldn't or had to do it in some seedy way? And imagine the kinds of suffering that that was a result of that. Huh? So, okay, so this also becomes an issue of women's rights, women's uh, reproductive rights with abortion. Okay. So does it make sense to blame just Kim Sun-ho, this one screen actor for these massive issues that are plaguing a society, not just South Korean society, but a lot of developed nations? Also, there are, there were a lot of, I, I just heard this or I saw this, there were a lot of uh, cases where the netizens were directly and pointedly attacking the young woman who posted this, okay? If you point a finger, you're going to have a bunch of fingers pointing back at you. That's just the way things work, right? So in a way, she kind of set herself up for that, but I think it's really messed up to, to, uh, stalk this woman and send her death threats and accuse her of all these heinous things like she's a person okay she's a person who obviously has trauma okay she's traumatized by this relationship which is probably a, a not a very fulfilling relationship she's probably traumatized by the fact that she stayed in a relationship that was not fulfilling and that was hurtful to her she's probably traumatized by the whole abortion thing okay so what does that say does that say Am I saying she's to blame? No, I think Korean society for not having a proper mental health support system to aid women, many, many, many young women who suffer abusive relationships with misogynistic and patriarchal boyfriends, I think that is to blame, okay? So this is a structural and systemic issue of society as a, as a greater whole, right? And the fact that South Korean society stigmatizes mental health. They stigmatize mental health. That's why people don't go and get mental health help because they don't want that on their fucking record that might potentially not allow them to get a job in the future. Maybe not even get married in the future, right? Like people have these goals, these aspirations in life and they think this record will impede that. Shouldn't be the case, but that fear gets in the way. So when you have that fear holding you back from going and getting mental help and emotional help, treatment essentially, so that you could find healing, you're gonna go online and try to find release in other ways. And unfortunately, this, this instance, it, it sort of blew up in this sort of out of control situation. And I also just read, I mean, today's Sunday, October 24th, I just read that Kim Sono is currently hospitalized and people don't know the nature of it, but my assumption, my assumption, just based on the pattern in South Korea, is it was probably a suicide attempt. Now, Kim Sun-ho, his career, his career, his celebrity fame is quite new, okay? And his two shows, Startup and Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha, is on Netflix in North America, at least. I don't know about the other territories in Europe or Latin America or in, in parts of Africa. I don't know what the deal is, but in North America, at least in the United States, Hometown Cha 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 and Startup are on Netflix. Now that means hundreds of millions of viewers have access to it. Imagine becoming a celebrity like that overnight, okay?
Now, fame, money, I mean, advertisements, films, TV deals, all of this, yeah, it's awesome, it's good. But when you have fame like that and you have those hundreds of millions, if not a billion, if not billions of eyes on you, there is always this moment when they could flip and turn on you in a like in an instant. That's terrifying. That's terrifying. That kind of pressure, it's it's an inhumane kind of pressure. It's an inhumane kind of pressure that the mediascape has created, that capitalist systems have created. Everybody wants to point a finger of blame and blame one person, right? Like everybody wants to blame Alec Baldwin. That's what all the press is doing at the moment. They're all saying Alec Baldwin's film set, Alec Baldwin shot, Alec Baldwin, Alec Baldwin. But a film set is an intricate, complex network of many, many, many people with a hierarchy, okay? You could blame pretty much every single person on that set for the death of that young DP. Essentially, you could. And you could blame Hollywood as a whole industry for the death of that young woman. You could blame everybody. But at the end of the day, I mean, what's the point? You know, a woman died and it's sad and it's tragic. Okay. At the end of the day, with Kim Sono, I mean, he's in the hospital. All right. He lost all of his deals. Like TV, like he did an episode on two days, one night. They took, they took that down. They took that down. He did a bunch of uh, advertisement endorsements. They took it all down. All right. He had movies lined up. He's gone. He's taken off. All right. His career right now is, is at a zero. Okay. I'm sure his life is at a zero. Kim Sun-ho is just as much a victim of the abuse that he caused on this young woman. Do you understand what I'm saying? The victimizers are just as much a victim to their victimization. Does that make sense? Whatever bad shit Kim Sun-ho did or does, Kim Sun-ho is also a victim of that. Do you understand? And whenever you or I, as individual persons, cause harm against another person, you and or I are just as much a part of that pain and agony. Can we reckon with that? Can we fully come to terms with that? Can we understand that? Because we have to. We must understand that if we want to move on and find healing. I said this to the person who was interviewing me for her podcast, but I said this. I was like, if you think that what Kim Sano did is anti-feminist and it's it goes against reproductive rights and women's health rights, then here's what you can do. Instead of going on Twitter and screaming about it and lashing out on this woman or Kim Sano or whatever, you can go and donate to Planned Parenthood. You can go and donate to a women's shelter. Okay, you can call up a friend and ask her how her day is going. You can do something nice for another fellow woman. Festering in the pain and festering in the rage, there is no end to that. If we just stay there, we're not being progressive, all right? We're devolving. We're being regressive. We're being the opposite of progressive. We're being the opposite of liberal. We're being the opposite of loving and compassionate. We're being the opposite of caring. We're being inhumane. Do you understand? If you dwell on the sins of others and make it your mission to bring them down, you are being inhumane. Bottom line, you're being just 
as inhumane as the rigidity of capitalist and hierarchical patriarchal situations where they neglect to see your humanity all right and i understand your pain i understand that you want to go down that road because of these systems and people who have treated you that way but you have a choice not to be exactly like them you have a choice to say i am for human rights i fight for human rights and the way i'm going to do that is through good things because in light is where there is god okay in good is where there is god it's not the opposite people keep saying well if god is so good if god is so benevolent no 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 god is not good good equals god okay good is god so go where god is go where good is please don't sit and fester in the wound and in the pain and in rage and in agony don't stay there recognize it acknowledge it be grateful to that to that reaction because that reaction just tells you okay this is a sign that what what whatever this is it's not right and then move on move forward all right move forward towards the utopic vision that you have for the future that you want and you can do that by being constructive by being helpful by being productive okay not by getting caught up in this whole dialogue of blame all right i'm over that shit. you know maybe we could find some healing by just analyzing this show hometown cha-cha-cha right so hometown cha-cha-cha or kidmao cha-cha-cha it's based on a book written by shin ha-eun uh, it was directed by yu jae-won and it stars shin mina shin mina is i mean a huge hallyu actress right um, and I thought she was remarkable on this show. Really, I thought she was fantastic. And of course, you have Kim Sun-ho as well. And um, basically, it's about a young woman who is, you know, she's smart. She's a successful dentist, but she has some disagreements with her boss and she quits. And what does what does Yoon Hye-jin do? What does Dr. Hye-jin do after she quits? She goes online. She gets drunk first of all, and then she goes online and then she vents about how lousy her boss is and how immoral and unethical she is, blah, 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 blah. And subsequently the next morning she regrets this and her boss, her former boss says to her, if you don't come and you know beg for forgiveness, I'm gonna make sure you never work in this town again. And she mina sticks to her guns and just doesn't work in Seoul ever again. So she is basically forced to move to this bumfuck town, the seaside village, right, uh, called Gongjin, and she settles there because there is a huge elderly community there, but there are no dentists. And as we all know, as you know, people get older, they have a lot of, you know, dental problems. So she becomes this um, very necessary person with a very necessary uh, career and function in this town right but she has a hard time adjusting why she's a she's a city girl she lived in seoul her whole life she's into bougie shit. she has high tastes she has a lot of demands she's very much an indoor girl right and seeing how these people in this small village they lack boundaries right they they are into everybody's business they have their own way of doing things and she's it's just there's constant conflict 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 conflicts but what is it about what is this about it's about it's about seeing each other for who and what they are recognizing one another's intentions okay and offering one another grace right that's what they do right i mean yun hee jin when she goes on the loudspeaker 
accidentally and talks mad shit about everybody in the village and everybody in the village hears her you know i mean that was a really awkward moment it's like how do you reconcile with that how do you how do you fix that right and when shimina's i mean shimina uh yunhejin when she's dealing with all these people making social faux pas and errors and you know stepping on her toes as a dentist and you know making her life a a really irritating kind of existence you know, she goes and she just communicates with them. They have a dialogue. Maybe that's the fucking thing. You just gotta have a dialogue with these people, you know? To be like, hey man, like, when you did that and that, it really hurt me, you know? Maybe that's the other thing. It's like, why don't we go to the very people who caused us pain and tell them how they made us feel? I mean, what is the holdback on that? You know, is it fear? Is it fear of seeing that person again? Fear of rejection? That they might reject what you say? And fully avoiding that and going online and seeking seeking some kind of affirmation from strangers? Does that help? I don't know. I don't think it does, personally. They're strangers. Everybody has their own trauma. And when they read other people's traumas, all they see is their own trauma rising back up to the surface. That's what's called a trigger. The reason why I think Hometown Cha 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 is a good show to really reflect on this whole mess with uh, Kim Sun Woo. Think about the character Hong Du Shik, okay? Hong Du Shik has his own reasons for why he couldn't initially commit to Yoon Hye Jin, right? I mean, they had they shared a kiss, but he starts acting as if they never had that moment he's attracted to her but he keeps repressing his emotions and she's like what is your deal and he basically says to her well my parents died when i was young and my grandfather raised me and i really wanted to play soccer that day so i went and played soccer but i wasn't home and my grandfather collapsed he had a heart attack and he died and i feel like i'm the reason to blame for that and i feel like everybody in my life is just doomed to die i feel like i'm the reason why they're dead oh boy this guy was beating himself up because people around him were dying. Hmm? Think of the guilt, right? I mean, do you think that this guy, Kim Sono, felt completely self-absolved after knowing that he asked his girlfriend to get an abortion and then subsequently dumping her? I mean, do you think that he was able to just be totally at peace with that past? I really doubt it. I really sincerely doubt it. And the chickens have come home to roost. And there are more victims everywhere. That's all I see. And then later you have this moment where Hong Dushik says uh, he has another sort of uh, shady past, right? Like, you know, when, when Yoon Hye-jin looked at this photograph that she found on his bookshelf and she's looking at it and he goes over and he snatches it away, right? Like... He has this past that he never talks about. Like, why did he leave Seoul? Why didn't he continue to pursue whatever he was pursuing after graduating such a prestigious university like Seoul National? What is what is your deal? You're a young man. Why are you not, you know, more ambitious? Why are you not fully, you know, expanding your wings? Like, all these questions, and he's just not ready to answer them, right? Oh when we're not ready to confront our past, when we're not ready to confront our past traumas, it's just not the time. 
Everything has its own time. Of course, that timing becomes somewhat forced because he meets somebody. Hong Dushik meets the son of the security guard at the building where Hong Dushik was a financial advisor to. And that man, the security man who is lower middle class with a child and a wife, took out a huge loan from the bank to invest in stocks and uh, put his house up for collateral and lost everything. Put, it, put up his savings, lost everything, and didn't tell his wife, right? If you look at the scheme of that, would you say Hong Dushik's character is the sole person to blame for that? I mean, Hong Dushik told him, like, please don't overdo it. But this man, okay, he's lower middle class, desperate for money, desperate to get out of his straits, desperate to give his son a better life, desperate to give his wife a better life. He does go to the extreme. He does overdo it. And as a result, loses everything, right? And what does Hong Dushik do? He gives up all of his savings and gives it to the wife of the man who is now hospitalized, who attempted suicide after this, right? So you see that he's he's sort of done what he could to reconcile or rectify the situation the best he could. And while he was on his way to the hospital, what does he do? His best friend, his young, this older brother figure, dies in a car accident. And what happens? The wife of that man blames him, says, you bring him back to life. You're the reason why. I mean, is that a fair blame? Right? It's not fair, but Hong Dushik's character takes that self-blame, you know? And if you look at the way he is so involved and engaged in every single individual person in that local community, it's like each effort is him trying to trying to heal from that, trying to do better, trying to make up for that, huh? That's what that is. It's this um, prolonged self-imprisonment. It's this prolonged self-placed purgatory that he wants to exist in because he hasn't forgiven himself. In any case, that's my answer, Mansa, to your question about what I think of this whole thing. And at the end of the day, my opinion is just an opinion. And my opinion doesn't really matter. What I want is for both this young woman who felt victimized by uh, Kim Sun-ho and, and for Kim Sun-ho, for both of them to find healing. That's what I want. And my other thing is, you know, maybe read gossip less. Yeah. As for audience studies, I don't really have a recommendation when it comes to audience studies and Korean dramas. Uh, but I think if you just go on Google Scholar and type in audience studies, Korean dramas and television, like a few articles will come up. There is a an, an edited anthology on Korean dramas and there is like one or two articles in there that addresses audience studies. The book is called The Rise of K-Dramas and it's edited by Cheyun Park and Angi Lee. Or is it Anji Lee? Anyway, those are the editors. So I know that that book has a couple of essays in there about uh, audience reception. So if that helps, that would be my recommendation. And um, you guys, today I'm going to talk to actually an audience, uh, TV studies and audience studies and affect studies scholar. Her name is Leah Stoyer. She's a PhD candidate at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And she and I were master's study students at UCLA. 
back in the day when we were just master's degree kids. And uh, Leah is also a fellow New Yorker. And Leah is, I, I love Leah. I think she is very, very funny. I think she is really good at being a host. Like she's, she's had a lot of house parties and dinner parties at, you know, at her home in LA. And it was always a, a marvelous time. She's very good at wrangling social events. And uh, she's also, you know, just a really, she has a big heart. Like she loves media. She loves movies and TV. She's, she's a big fangirl at heart. And I, I love everything about Leah because the things that she studies and sees are so different from my own purview. And I appreciate her for that. And right after my conversation with Leah Stoyer, we're going to have a flashcard series with comedian Ai Yoshihara. <laughs> it's, so we had a slight spare room and um, we, uh, she moved in with a dog in this apartment. So this was like her safe room. And now like that's just like what we call it. It's the cat's bedroom. And I guess my office because it gets better internet than where I usually work. <laughs> Uh-huh. Oh, wait, so she meeting your girlfriend? Uh, yes. Your girlfriend has a dog? Yeah, she does have a dog. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. Do they get along? Yeah, that's cool. Um, you know, not really, but, like, everybody's <laughs> fine, um, and... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 fine, and like he, the dog doesn't have his own room, so you know the cat he can't does. complain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. we were talking about the um, the Sopranos, Sopranos movie. movie. Did you did you watch mm -hmm. it? Mm-hmm. Did, did you like it? I liked it. I mean, I'm like, you know, I'm more into the fact that David Chase finally made that movie because. I was listening to his interview on WTF and he kept saying how like all his life, all he wanted to do was make films, but his career is known for the Sopranos, like a TV show. Mm -hmm. And like, it's like, he can't get out of that identity that the public knows him for, but you know, in his heart, like he's like a screenwriter for film and he's like got passion for filmmaking. And, you know, so I saw the film more as like this meaningful event for David Chase. And, mm. um, and you know, it's like set in Jersey and, you know, it's like got that East Coast vibes and, you know, like, like I'm into that, that whole thing. And um, so the movie was like, as a film, just objectively speaking, I was just like, okay, this is just a film. Like, I'm probably not going to rewatch this. You know, it's not like my favorite thing ever, but Am yeah. I glad I saw it? I'm like, yeah. I was like, it's worth watching. What about you? Well, that's a that's a sweetly generous view. <laughs> well, now I feel like now I feel like an asshole because I, was, I no. thought you were gonna say that it was um, garbage, and then we like yell at each other in New York accents about how it was garbage. In, in uh, some I mean, aspects, it was garbage. In some aspects, yes, it was garbage. garbage. <laughs> but like. Like it's, but it's fine. Like, I was just saying that, like, I one of my favorite things is when TV shows have a movie as a finale. I actually think that's great. I enjoy yeah. the closure, especially because, like, as you know, I love all kinds of fanfic. I've read mm -hmm. Sopranos fanfic. I'm not going to mm -hmm. lie about it. Yeah. So, like, yeah. I feel like this movie was that. It's like David Chase being like, what if I wrote fanfic about what life was like 
in yeah. the prequel era, and then HBO yeah. funded it. But I did think it was a little bit comical because I was reading about how he was so upset that HBO was releasing it on their platform at the same yep. time they were putting it in theaters. And he's yep. just like, wow. Very, very angry. The, yeah. the integrity um, of the yeah. movie. And I was just like, yeah, but it's a, it's basically a TV movie. So like, it makes sense to me that it would be yeah. out in both ways. And I saw it in theaters cause I am a yeah. Sopranos purist. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to see it in theaters, like on the Friday that it was coming out. And, um, like I wanted it to be because it's like one of those movies it's like it's like the Sopranos like everybody's seen it and I wanted it to be like an event I wanted to go with people but like nobody wanted to go see it in theaters because it was going to be on HBO and I'm like well okay like I guess I'm broke too so I'll just watch Mm -hmm. it on HBO because I have HBO Max I'm like what am I paying this for you know so I just watched it on HBO Max even though my intention was to see it in theaters because David Chase was making such a big stink about how upset he was that it was going to be on HBO Max and I was like all right well whatever I'm just going to do the thing that you don't like um but I loved Ray Liotta's characters like they were so great like that pervy dad guy like when he was playing the pervy dad um asshole dad the mafia dad Mm -hmm. and then the the locked up uncle like so good i just loved loved him and and you know what is so funny about ray liotta playing like these like uh mafioso characters is that his accent is completely wrong and that's what makes it so right like everyone else is just like hey you got a little italian piece on the side meanwhile like ray liotta is like yeah, here I do yoga in prison. And I'm just like, why is he why does he sound like that? Like, but it's so wild. Um it really works, honestly. It makes it just he's so iconic. He's always like kind of, you know, typecasted into these like Italian mafia movies, like, you know, yeah. like Goodfellas and all that. But I think he's like Bostonian. He's like from Boston, I think. And um he's like Irish. He grew up with an Irish family, yeah. you know. Um he was also like an adoptee like he Mm. he grew up with adoptive parents and stuff so like um who knows if he's actually i think he said he's irish like he knows that his background is irish but um i just i loved that character so much like this guy who is self-admittedly a murderer he's like i'm locked Mm -hmm. up for murder totally resigned to the fact that he's locked up and he's gotten so fucking zen (laughs) yeah yeah he did some really really choice lines like why listen to me i'm a murderer why listen to my love advice Um, ah so good but that's who i would listen to about that shit exactly because he's he's that he's that buddha guy you know he's the guru you know and he's the it's like what's his face uncle um who's the main uncle uncle was it uncle june no 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 not not junior. Oh, you he, mean oh, like Uncle Dicky, Dicky Moltisanti. Dicky, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uncle Dicky, when Dicky goes to this guy, he's not going to like. I mean, he's Catholic. He doesn't go to a priest. He doesn't go to his wife. He doesn't go to anybody with his shit. He goes to mm-hmm. a fellow murderer who's in prison, who has all yep. fucking day to think and reflect and come to terms and make peace and you know and like the things that he quotes he's uh, quoting like buddhist text when he says desire mm-hmm. creates suffering that's like yep. buddhist text 101 shit you know and that's like such the 
that's actually like a fundamental baseline of a lot of these um mafia movies and shows yeah. it's like of course initially these italian families and you know like you had you had jewish gangsters you had you know irish gangsters you had asian gangsters in new york like these immigrants had to become gangsters as a collective community to protect their families and their communities and find a way to make money because there were no they didn't have credit like they mm-hmm. they couldn't get bank loans and shit so they did they created this underground network for money purposes but come on like at this point they have stability you know compared to how the black communities were being treated they're considered white they have privilege like they have money and so mm-hmm. anything in excess of that is greed right anything in excess of, so when ray Liotta's character says you know desire creates suffering it's like how much more do you need you know how much more do you want like you got a mistress right. like you got now you want to su- like it's like so much so yeah i mean I don't know. Like, I don't think a lot of people understand, especially men, like men who um, sort of glorify these kinds of characters. uh, I don't think they understand that they're all fundamentally flawed, you know, like even like the Godfather, right? Like Al Pacino's character dies alone, you know, like uh, they don't understand that these guys like just let their ego just overtake them and, and ultimately, they're fucking criminals. Like, they're taking other people's lives away just for their own yeah. ego purposes. Well, that's why I always loved that sort of tension that was, I guess, in the original series, but also this movie about, like, using these sort of, like, easy spiritual um, mantras to sort of, mm-hmm. like, self-soothe when you know that, like, you're doing something that's kind of against the laws of, like, any spiritual mm-hmm following or like the laws of nature you know right and what you're what you're saying reminds me of this conversation i was having with someone recently about how like men think that going talking about going to therapy is going to therapy where Mm. it's like i where you're like acknowledging your issues and you're like you know what therapy is a really good idea and like now i'm free now i have the catharsis because Mm -hmm. i know what healing and being a good person is supposed to look like but haven't mm-hmm. actually like dug in and done that kind of work and i feel like that's the dark comedy of the surprise yeah. where it's like tony's picking up all these like you know little uh like a great wind carried me across the sky he's like now i have spiritual peace because i've learned right. this little mantra that makes me feel better about it but like that but he's not stopping he's still killing yeah. he's still it's taking like a good little yeah and that was, you know, that I mean, not to, I mean, whatever, we're putting spoilers. I mean, this, this, all, all, every single podcast episode of mine has spoilers that so people know. <laughs> but like, it's like in the end, when, you know, when uh, Melfi's like, oh, I'm making him better, but he's becoming an even bigger criminal. Like when she has this right. realization and she says, I have to stop therapy with you, you know, uh, it's, it's basically saying like, yeah, like, he's he's so at peace with his decisions his awful decisions which is life-taking that uh this isn't right like this isn't the right course of action you know um so i i yeah what you're bringing up is very important and yeah like i hear that shit all the time like 
I don't know, like uh, men who say they're feminists, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. that also makes women go, Ugh, you know, um, I feel similarly about like white guys who say they're going on Buddhist retreats. I'm like, Ugh. you know, Yikes. it's like, why? So you could come to terms with the fact that your people like colonized and raped and pillaged and, you know, like, is that so? Um, yeah, it's like coming to, I think. I think coming to peace with your decisions is very important, but coming to terms with it is another thing. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and from that point, the choices you make thereafter, they have to be different. Like you can't continuously live the way you've been living. That's psychotic. It's like yeah, the way, exactly. yeah, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, please. No, it's like uh, the way capitalism always hyper-rationalizes everything, you know? Like if you, I don't know if you've talked to like bankers, like invest, excuse me, investment bankers, but I have an investment banker friend and he's like Swiss German, like super rich, never, never, never had to suffer or, uh, you know, um, he never had financial precarity in his life. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. By the way, I could hear you clicking on your mouse it's uh I could sorry it your, your um <laughs> so sorry your face is completely pixelated right now so it's like I'm oh okay drawn, but that's just oh. my burden to bear if everything is fine <laughs> to you i'm just gonna live everything with it. everything is fine on my end so okay. uh it, it'll come back stop it, clicking this, stuff and just live yeah yeah, yeah it'll come back don't worry about it it's 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 all good um no so when i talk to him he rationalizes every single horrific thing that capitalism makes people do like money Mm -hmm. just money means dehumanization money will always dehumanize everybody and everything that's just the way money works but we're human beings we have feelings and we have thoughts so when something happens like i had to lay off thirty-five thousand people just because i screwed up they, that person's got to sit with that and they got to rationalize why that happened. And if they mm-hmm. can't face the fact that that's on them, on themselves, which in part it is, but it's not just them. It's also the system and other things. If they can't mm-hmm. take that burden on and face that and they only hyper-rationalize it as, yeah. well, this is the way things are and whatever, I resign myself, then that's dehumanization. That is forgetting what it's like to be a person anymore and uh forgetting about all the all the thousands of people that they laid off because of this one dude's mistake or several dudes mistakes up at the top well yeah because i mean these systems wouldn't thrive and continue to work if there was room for human emotion and empathy so like part of even thinking about like that whole like neoliberal complex where it's just like, how am I going to have it all? Like work really hard and feel really good and make, you know, cute little bento boxes for my kids <laughs> and like, you know, shop at Kohl's and get the deals. Like all of that is basically like, it's not possible, but mm-hmm. to rationalize your yeah. stress or like the days you cry in a closet, like mm-hmm. that allows you to continue to keep going at you know, whatever cog level you're at in a machine like this. Um, Yeah. No, I like that because it's like, we need to, um, we need to, we need to get in touch with our humanity on a daily basis, like on a moment to moment basis. We need to really 
uh, face the fact that we're a person. And I think when we, as you say, like when we're part of that machine, we're we're going to have to ignore it. You know, your boss is screaming at you because you didn't mm-hmm. send an email that afternoon. They're screaming at you. When somebody screams at a person, the instinct is to like, it's like fight or flight, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But you got to stand there and take it and pretend like this isn't affecting you not one bit. And you just say, I'm sorry. Thank you for your feedback. Go. And then you do your work. Right. That's fucking insane. That's psychotic. But that's how a lot of us are expected to be in these office yeah. settings, in these work settings. Um, or in our grad school settings. Like, thanks. Oh, for my God. Thanks for triggering me today. I really appreciate yeah. it. Why? What happened? <laughs> That happened you know, at grad school. You already know. Hmm. It's a uh, boy. Do I? It's that. It's it's part of that too. I think like I we think about the you know academic world that you and I both know as being a little bit like separate from or adjacent to the idea of like mm-hmm. professional mm-hmm. environments. Um, but yep. that idea of productivity and performing, um, like happily having it all, yeah. is at the center of it. Um, and it's nonsense. Yeah. It is nonsense. I've been it's, navigating a lot of that. Uh, it's all an illusion. Yeah, it's yeah. all an illusion. Like, you know, right now um, I'm not a student anymore. Like, I, I am in the job market, um, but like, I don't have all my eggs in that one tenure track basket. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And that gives me a yeah. lot of ease and comfort. You know, just and. And I spent a lot of time building my own self-trust and understanding what inherent value is and what self-worth is and all of that and not abiding by societal standards of value. The way society Mm -hmm. values an individual is so fucking insane. And uh, like, I don't know, I, I had to do a lot of that work since fall of last year and I'm glad I did all of that because if I hadn't done it, like, you know, I'd be a nervous fucking wreck right now. You know, UCLA offered me some kind of bullshit position and I'm like, I'm not doing this for this much money at your institution where I feel I I, I have PTSD from like, no, I'm done with y'all. I'm done with y'all. I, I genuinely feel like when we, become adjuncts or whatever, we should just say no to all of it. Just literally deprive the entire educational system of adjuncts and see what happens. Just deprive them. I think that's how it should be. So they understand that we're not going to put up with it. But the problem is so many people continuously put up with it. Why? Because they don't understand their own self-worth. And they think that the way society uh, puts these demands on them and these stupid expectations of them, it's like, oh yeah, teach, uh, teach three courses for a single mm-hmm. semester. We're gonna, we're gonna pay you um, two thousand dollars for the whole semester <laughs> for three months, yeah. four months, whatever it takes. And to and believe that is that's like livable see, is insane. It is insane, and you you see yourself as like the, the comparison culture sort of makes you feel like, well, if that's what they're willing to pay me, then that's probably what I'm worth. I haven't done enough to get to that next level of living. Exactly. Um, yeah. They blame themselves. Um, they blame themselves. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's this 
awful relentless cycle and yeah. right now i'm like outside of that you yeah. know i'm not gonna put myself I, through that I'm, shit I'm i know envious. it's not worth it yeah i'm not gonna do I, it i definitely I, refuse. I, don't, I don't see myself as like I, i'm not at the point where i'm kind of like tapping out of the process but i definitely made a lot of moves uh, again like the same time frame you're talking about like since fall of last year to you know prioritize different things like i you know went to like mental health treatment and took mm -hmm. like a real step back from mm -hmm. um like the overproduction and the overperforming too like being oh yeah the like that the the person in this social mm -hmm. culture of academia and like mm -hmm. the reality is is that like it may extend that timeline or make me feel like less of a um i'm not okay first of all prodigy i can't even use it anymore because i'm like old <laughs> af now like no one can i can never use the word again like it's just like i'm like a prodigy for an old person in their 30s but <laughs> i'm like it's that idea of like i'm not like beating the timeline i'm not like being amazing i'm not getting the best thing out there but like i think part of actually coming to madison and like removing myself from that ucla culture and la and stuff like that like oh yeah it really forced me to be like um life is slower are you mm -hmm. actually enjoying each day of your life in this mm. program and you're not and now it, are things objectively better yes like did i get you know help and support and figure mm -hmm. out what i want out of my life, mm -hmm. my job, yes. Does that make it easier to do this grad school journey? No, because now I'm out mm. of the fucking matrix and I still have mm. to, you know, reckon with the bureaucracy in this job market and like performing. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think a lot of people in this academic world like are out of the matrix. Like they mm. you're just suffering every day mm. and you're hoping that one day, you know, you'll suddenly be making lots of money and be successful and all this will be a blip behind you, but it's not right. worth it. Yeah. It's like, if you uh, equate money with happiness, then yeah, desire creates suffering. Like, um, okay. So you're saying you're done with grad school? No, <clears throat> I'm saying that I, so I had Are intended you... to like go on the job market and like do okay. everything in like the fast to normal time frame, okay. right? All right. And then when stuff went sideways, right, yeah. and I had to prioritize different stuff, like, it may take an extra year. Like, it may take longer to finish this diss and, like, get all mm. this stuff together. And then, yeah. like, even if people around you are like, oh, it's fine, it happens, it, yeah. the ac academia creates a monologue in yourself where it's just, like, you loser. Like, why are you yeah. taking so long on this dumb thing? It's not um, just academia, though, Leah. It's also yourself. Mm -hmm. It's the yeah. parental authority figures. It's the sure. it's whatever authority figures you put inside inside you know that exists inside of you that also creates that. But yeah, academia and is that a big stuff is bullshit. That it's stuff all bullshit. Is bullshit. It's all bullshit. Um, it makes no sense. It is mm -hmm. just like creating. Um, it's creating suffering for yours. Even if you remove like those demons, you're like, I no longer am slave to this suffering because yeah. I've you know done this therapy or like figured things out sometimes uh -huh. it's still there it's like a vestigial limb oh yeah just like i'm still making myself suffer for some reason um, for some reason out of that. i think you know i think it's because again like we're product of our societies um and even like you know i know you're jewish but like america is a very christian capitalist what do you mean society. by that i i know you're jewish what do you i know mean you're a that? jew you're you're this jew so 
no, it's like this America. It's a it's a very Christian mentality as well. Like mm -hmm. uh, suffering leads to greater reward. Mm -hmm. That's why it coincides with capitalism so well. You know, that's why like America figured it out like that. And now South Korea being its sub empire has also figured it out like that. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the belief that that life is by default suffering is not at all something I agree with. Right. The the belief that a person is born a sinner is also something mm -hmm. I just don't agree with. Yeah. I don't agree. My my philosophy now, and it turns out my philosophy's always been this. I just didn't know it because The Big Lebowski is my favorite movie. Is mm -hmm. just don't try so hard. Yeah. Life is ease. Life should be ease. Life was meant for ease. So mm -hmm. what does that mean? Okay, if I want to prioritize happiness and joy, I can attain that anytime I want. It's yeah. just a frame of mind. I don't need to have a bunch of money in my savings account or my checking account and go and buy that pink lounge chaise for me to feel happy. I just don't right. need to do that. The way that our society is teaching all of us and breeding and training all of us to think that way in conditional terms, right? That's insanity. Yeah. With that said, I mean, like, you know, if you look at just spirituality in general, you find this in all of it. You find this in Islam, you find this in Christianity, you find this in Judaism, you find this in Buddhism, you know, like love is non-conditional, right? And mm -hmm. joy it, joy and light, they do equal God, right? So if you look for those things, and if you say, this is, this is priority, rather than say, I need to do this in order to get there, by just removing that, that platform, mm -hmm. you know, the desire part, you could just get that very easily. And if you maintain that, then all the other things I feel, I think it, they will just come naturally with ease. You know? Yeah. But I agree. I think most people just probably don't truly know what would bring them joy. I think like that's it, it takes a long time to, if ever, to figure yeah. out like what makes you, tr especially because like, yeah, especially like, so as you know, I'm very invested in like studying emotion and it's like, yeah. it's amazing how the the feeling of joy or happiness can be artificially mm -hmm. constructed and you're yeah. not actually feeling it in your body, but you can trick no. yourself into yeah. living in that state. Right. And that's what the most people disconnect. Are doing. Yeah. There's a constant <laughs> persistent disconnect between mind and body, between mm -hmm. mind, body and spirit, a constant disconnect. But the more we try to connect those things, the more we come into alignment and the, and the easier things will become, you know, we can diminish our fears about everything, you know? Mm -hmm. We can go to things that attract us and that want us and avoid things that don't want us, you know? Think about how many people try to, like, shove themselves into situations or groups or people that just don't belong, mm -hmm. you know? Like, yeah, exactly. think about that. It happens all the time. Why does it happen? Out of fear, you know? It's like, if I don't go there, I'm not worth something. I'm not somebody. But what you said earlier is very important because it's like, yeah, knowing how to find it, knowing what it is. So knowing what it is that, knowing who you are, 
knowing who you are and knowing what you want in order to make the most meaning out of this life, that is the start. And to get there, yeah, it takes a lot of work. But that is the start. You got to get there, you know? Yeah. And I just, I wish that, like, you know, as arts and humanities, like, professionals, like, like I wish when we go in to teach, I wish we could teach that more rather than saying, Mm -hmm. look at all the systems that are oppressing you and has a stranglehold on you. Look at this shit. We got to fight that shit, you know? And, like, I'm, you know, really into, like, Loretta Ross's teaching lately where she says, did you ever stop and ask what you're fighting for? What a great way to fucking reframe that shit. I'm like, I don't want to be unhappy, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. my yeah, my dissertation has critical race theory. Yeah, it has it critiques global hierarchy and white supremacy. Yeah, it does all that shit. Yeah, it critiques misogyny. Yeah. But like I don't want to be miserable. I want freedom. Mm-hmm. I want freedom for myself yeah. and I want freedom for the people who read the book, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I agree. Yeah. Especially with like scholarship that deals with these systems that create human pain based on Mm -hmm. whatever it be like identity um, or economic disparity and things like that. Like, I think that's part of too, what's so draining about talking to other people and like sharing intellectual ideas about it because it always ends in sort of just like this, these drainingly negative, like whose fault is this? Yeah the worst Blaming. at this um, yeah. yeah yeah instead of being transformative and all and focusing about like well what even you know when it comes to this like the fucking dissertation like what brings yeah. you joy about this work what do you right. hope that this work does to propel people forward and make them feel good yeah. about engaging with these not feel good about the issues but feel good yeah. about engaging with them and like yeah in exactly yeah offering the resolution offering that that breath of or that breath of relief or even just offering one breath you know it's like that is the work of scholarship that is our job as thinkers you know yeah um like i think those questions are so important like those questions you just laid out like why am i writing this for what purpose what is the mm-hmm. purpose for me personally? And then what is the greater purpose for the people who will be reading this and citing this? You know, those are such important questions. And I struggled with them a lot at the start of my dissertation. But by the end, like I, they were clear to me. And of course, after mm-hmm. I'm done with the dissertation, I, re, I reanalyze it and I'm like, have I answered all of it? Because I'm in a different mm-hmm. frame of mind now. So right. it's a whole different journey for the book, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know, like, I don't know how much you miss California. Do you miss California? I do. Yeah, I miss it in sort of that, like, nostalgic, like, I see it in a shimmery way in my mind's eye. I don't know that mm. there's anything for for me right now going back there, but I, I miss the memories. I'll say that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, the landscape of California is really something else. And uh, I bought this book recently. Uh, it's written by Simeon Wade. He's like, um, he, ha- he has, he's a PhD, uh, but he just never made it like tenured, you know, full kind of that kind of looming professor kind of thing because he was gay and, and he was 
like openly gay in like the 70s and shit and mm-hmm. everybody was just like discriminating against him and he just couldn't get a job you know uh mm-hmm. so in the 70s and 80s and 90s i mean imagine right um but he uh was um how do you say he hosted an lsd event for foucault <laughs> in his in his house shut up took sounds- took foucault to death valley and gave him an LS like administered or whatever, just gave him his LSD trip. Like it was a trip setter to Foucault. Yeah. Yeah. If anyone ever needed LSD, it was Foucault. Foucault, after he had L- that LSD trip, he he tore up his first draft of the history of sexuality and rewrote the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And when I was on LSD, I was thinking a lot about Foucault. And mm-hmm. how he's seeing, I mean, that's what LSD does. And that's what theory does, right? It helps you see mm-hmm. what's there, but not, not visible in the, right. shall, in the shallow vision, right? You mm-hmm. see the depths and the dimensions and the layers of everything and the echoes of everything. That's right? how I always thought about um, when I learned uh, in, like, when we were first teaching, like, history of American film, and I learned about the technique of deep focus. Where there are things that that are so it's it's something that you see a lot in like um, classical Hollywood and like uh, film noir where the foreground is in focus, right? Often you'll see like the foreground's in focus, but the background's blurry, right? That's Uh uh normal. Yeah. Or it might be the other way around. Deep focus is this technique where um, the both the foreground and the background, uh, the camera is sort of positioned in a way so that everything is like in sharp focus. Whoa. So, like Citizen Kane has a lot of it. So it gives uh. like these environments this really almost like surreal um like look for the audience where you can see and feel everything in there. So no detail is like irrelevant in the scene, uh. right? Like each mm. each person is in the foreground. And I I thought about that a lot when I think about drugs, specifically yeah. psychedelic drugs and psychedelic. how it puts everything in deep focus. It's like now I can see the structure as well as the objects that are contained I love that. within it. Like it's just like I love that. It's uh it makes me think of like cubis cubism, you know? Because yeah. like, cubist painting was essentially that. They were like, how come like paintings always have like the centerpiece and then like everything is just backdrop and whatever. Cubism mm-hmm. just like disrupts all of that. And it's like every single plane is equal, right? Yeah. And uh yeah, like and a lot of those modernist painters and writers, they were tripping on psychedelics, you know, mm-hmm. like I just keep coming back to this awakening over and over again. I'm like all the things that I read and saw and watched, they have different meaning now. Like I see the other, uh, the other phrases, the other stories, the other narratives now right. that I didn't see before. Um, but yeah, like fucking, this dude gave Foucault this experience and then was forgotten. And he had this memoir that he had written like in, you know, plastic bags and shit. And this woman, she's a scholar. She went and found this guy and talked to him and convinced him to publish it. And as soon as she had like a written first draft, like the uh, Simeon Wade, he passed away like immediately. Yeah. It's kind of wild, but um, I'd never heard of him before. Nobody has, but yeah. but reading the book, it's it's it reads like a screenplay. Honestly, 
And I'm like, this could just very easily become a movie, like a like an indie mm-hmm. movie about Foucault doing acid in in California. Like, I would love that. right? Right? Yeah. Who would play Foucault? I don't know. Fucking what's that guy's name? Um, he's in like everything. He was Phoebe's dad in on Friends. What's his name? Phoebe's. You know oh, Bob Balaban. That yeah. is a really good casting. <laughs> it's so stupid. That is really good. Bob Balaban as Foucault. <laughs> it should See, be him. More like I was thinking more like Ed Harris for that like weird oh, sexual energy. Yeah. But if yeah, you but could Foucault like combine. Like, Foucault was like bald and like, you know, kind of like an elderly twink gay. Like, I feel like Ed Harris is too hot. That's true. You know what I mean? I know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely but, not Twinkie. Bob Balaban is the oldest twink in the world. I, I could I see Bob Balaban. I could see him killing that role. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, what a, and what a random thing to mention from his CV, being Phoebe's dad. <laughs> but I, I knew right away, to me, that is one of his... <laughs> yeah, I knew you would know. I knew you would know. <laughs> oh man. I I still remember um when uh you it was at your friend's house, but it was Thanksgiving, and then you were like, We're gonna watch uh the Thanksgiving episode of Friends together mm-hmm. where um Brad Pitt is like the guest. And I was like, This is like yeah. so fun. This is like a fun ass Thanksgiving. <laughs> you know, like you're you were always great with that, like, you know, your parties uh, and events with these like fun gimmicks i was just like yes like she understands yeah you're good at entertaining you're good at that thank you i appreciate that um yeah yeah, i I really miss that i remember that one thanksgiving maybe this is the same one but it was like no one was around except for you and my friend yeah and we had like a three-person thanksgiving where i was the only mutual friend of two people and it was good it was great i loved it yeah i loved it i had a blast um but i wanted to ask you about um audience studies a little bit um and like i don't know like what at this moment i mean are you doing you're doing i mean isn't audience studies like your thing right now like isn't that what you're doing Mm -hmm. or has it changed yeah okay i want to just ask you about like um how do you treat the audience like for instance, I'm I'm working on this. I, I have it. I have a draft of it. I interviewed three um, Korean Americans, uh, three queer Korean Americans, and their reception of Korean dramas, wh- where there are like queer subtexts or you know mm-hmm. uh, supporting characters in it, and what their um, wh- what their reception was like of that. And when I'm, when I'm reading the interviews or rather watching the video recordings of these interviews, I'm kind of treating that as a, another text, you know? Mm-hmm. How do you sort of, like, figure out, like, I, I don't know how to frame this. Like, how do you figure out how to, uh, like, what, like, how do you decide what to choose from the things that they're saying, you know? Because, like, I don't want it to be, like, journalistic and, like, take sound mm-hmm. bites and blah, blah, blah. Like, where do you find the balance with that? Like, I mean, I don't know if you've ever struggled with this at all. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's hard, too, because I struggled a lot with... I did a bunch of interviews for my dis concurrently with this other project that I was working on with my advisor Mm -hmm. that was audience studies based. It was like we were interviewing people about um, their experiences with streaming TV platforms. Um, Mm. 
And also, I mean, for me, I was asking more questions about like their emotional attachments with, yeah. um, with shows and whatnot, which seems like it's the kind of like at the heart of what you're doing too. And so it's yeah. hard. Cause like when you do interview based audience work, yeah. it all boils down to these transcripts. Right. And a producing yeah. transcripts is like the most fucking psychologically mm. backbreaking. It's just the worst yeah. labor that exists with doing audience studies, but also it kind of like, it does a disservice to that kind of work because when it comes down to the words, right, their word choice and their syntax, it erases so oh, much yeah, of the yeah. the interaction that you had with them, right? And if mm-hmm. you're not the one picking out the quotes and stuff, it's useless because someone who wasn't there conducting the interview may not remember that interesting moment that someone had where the words look super irrelevant or average like they're not saying anything new somebody else already said this but you know as the interviewer that in that moment their body language was super animated or they're they're grabbing something from their environment to sort of like illustrate this to you so like that that was definitely and when i first proposed my diss and i had my defense i was talking about like oh i'm trying to find this new methodology for interviewing audiences Uh, that is about it's about affect where I'm recording not only like what they're saying, but I would like the part of the data to be like, well, what's going on with their body language? What are they showing me in terms of like, which nook of their house is the most comforting and allows them to get the most out of these texts and why and shit like that. Right. right? Um, So I find that like, it's challenging because choosing the right, it's, we have to go beyond like choosing the right quote, right? Like yeah. it's not just about like, do I create a good data collection system where I can search the word queer and get right. little sound bites where they all uh-huh. talked about queerness, uh-huh. right? Like, um, so I think like, I don't know that there's an answer to that yet. Yeah, the only answer, I feel like the only answer goes back to like neoliberal, like you need to do everything in your work because that's the only way to do it is to enjoy it all and do it all, which is like, if you conducted the interview and you did it on video, or you were in their house, like you should be the only person to extract that data because it all comes down to um, like what happened in the space of that Mm. conversation that was important. It's not like, did they give me a good quote that I'm going to use? But like, um, were they animated discussing this particular thing? Like, and you insert those details in. Yeah, I think so. Cause like, when did I feel the most connected as an interviewee discussing yeah. this series with this person. Um, it's yeah. because we shared this sort of, we shared like a little smile at that point. Right. So yeah. it indicated that this thing created a parasocial relationship between us. Yeah. Like that stuff's important. It and is. It just gets lost in all the in time. Morning, I think all yeah. the time. I, I love, I love that. I love that. I love that you're doing that. And I like that you're charting your own kind of method in in this kind of thing, in this sort of meta affective research that you're conducting, it seems. Because you're right, like, there's so many things that go unsaid, but you you feel it because of the way, because of their stance or their look Mm -hmm. or, you know, or pauses behind before certain things. Like, it creates drama. It's like you're you're kind of um, trying to recapture, you're, you're becoming a novelist, essentially. Right. Or well, yeah, uh, like... it's novelism, uh, novelism, novelistic or journalistic. Like you said, like, it sounds like journalism. Like, what the fuck is wrong with that? Like, journalists know how to create 
drama and tell a story. You know how like you're reading these profiles of people and they're like, so she sat at the table and she like stirred her like low fat chai latte. Yeah. Well, the New York Times does a lot of that. They do. And like when you read them, it's um, they're creating like colors and you can tell that they're sort of like constructing the emotion of the moment in ways that's like context outside of the quote but we don't do that in academia, right? Like, and there are storytellers and we're not supposed to be storytellers, like that kind of distinction. Yeah. But for me, it's like when you're doing audience studies, you must be a storyteller and you have to like discuss the interpersonal nature of getting this data because it, it is about, so like audiences share feeling and like you're sharing, like why else do we study audiences? Cause like probably because you know what it is to be a part of one. Exactly. So, like, exactly. And uh, you know who's very good at that? Uh, the people that I, I think are very good at that are anthropologists. Mm. They're so, mm-hmm. like, when I was reading anthropology texts written by, like, Rachel Myungju or, like, Pranima Mankakar, when I was reading their books, I was like, they are so free. They're literally, mm-hmm. like, jotting down every last detail of the whole thing. And it's part of their analysis. It's not just the things that they say. It's the whole thing. And that whole thing does impact everything. I mean, the meaning shifts when you take that whole into consideration. Um, And I was just like, okay, then I'll just do it like that. I'll just do it like they do. When I read anthropologists' works and I saw the way they were doing it, I felt greater freedom compared to... I don't know, some of the other texts that I had looked at. Cause, and it was more interesting and fun and engaging to read their works, the anthropologists' mm-hmm. works, honestly, because yeah. they wrote a compelling story. Like, it mm-hmm. was, I read them with ease and pleasure. I was a part of this writing group with um, uh, Minju Lee. She's, her mm-hmm. advisor was Purnima Mankakar, and she's in gender and sexuality studies, but because Purnima is an anthropologist, like, Minju's work was very anthropological and I mm-hmm. had a fucking blast reading her dissertation in our writing group. Mm-hmm. I was just like, I can't, I can't wait for next week. I want to read her five pages next week so badly because it was so yeah. it was such a thrill to read because she she was she was being a storyteller. So I love yeah. that you're you're doing that kind of work in in your with your dissertation. That's amazing. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I feel like with your work too, it gives me sort of the same feeling because when you can feel like when you can feel like a fire through someone's work in academia like that it's so valuable to me it's just Mm -hmm. like when there's a passion that's actually driving the research i feel like that's always been your deal as well like i think about like i'm always i've I've talked to a lot of people randomly about like johnny yune recently Mm -hmm. i don't know why but like i Johnny Yoon, yeah. I always, mm-hmm. like, I guess I just always remembered, like, the way you would talk about him in a way where it felt like you were, like, I don't know, like, talking about your uncle or something. Like, there was, like, a personal yeah. connection to this person. Like, we we have to, like, lift this person out of the annals of history because it's crucially important to people's emotional development, right? It is. Who connected yeah. with him through media. And that, yeah. was, that was palpable, right, in the scholarship yeah. about it. And that's valuable to me, like, that yeah that's true well thank you yeah i i enjoyed writing that uh article so much because uh yeah he did like you know i was 
I found his stuff because my mom mentioned it one time. She's like, oh, she's like, mm-hmm. right. She's like, as soon as I was a newlywed and I was at home, I was doing all these domestic things. I was watching a lot of TV and I remember watching Johnny Yoon on television. Mm-hmm. And do you know about this guy? I was like, no. She's like, yeah, he was like in America and he used to be on like the Tonight Show and stuff. I was like, what? Like, I'd never heard of this guy. So I started mm-hmm. researching him and there was this Korean guy, you know, on t- Tonight Show with Carson and mm-hmm. he had a bunch of pilots at NBC. And I was like, what? How come nobody knows this guy? And I would grab yeah. any fucking Korean American around me. I'm like, do you know about Johnny Yoon? And they're like, no, who's that? And I was like, oh my God, everybody keeps saying Margaret Cho is the first Korean American to get, or the first Asian American to get a sitcom. No, mm-hmm. no. And even before Johnny Yoon, there was somebody else. You know, it's like whenever somebody says this is the first, right? When scholars say the first ever to blah, blah, blah. Or journalists mm-hmm. say first to blah blah blah. That's got to yeah. be questioned because it's like right. honestly, we don't know all of history, you know. So to claim yeah. them to be the first ever, you know, you could reframe it. it's like the first ever documented herein, or mm-hmm. you know, but there is no such thing as the first. There was always somebody. Well, before. you always gotta say the first documented because it's like what you're saying tells us, you know when it comes to who's doing the documenting of like yeah. the first person to do this, like who's got yeah. an interest in exposing, huh. you know, Johnny Yoon before. Yeah. Margaret or Cho. just say, yeah. Or just say there's no first, there's no fucking number. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's gotta be like number yeah. one. I was like, no, it's, it's not, that doesn't fucking matter. He's just a guy that was around at this time. And, and the Asian American community, which bitches about how there is not enough representation. It's like, here you go. Here's another one to add to your list mm-hmm. and find comfort in it, you know? Mm-hmm. And Johnny Yoon yeah. was comforting to me, a great, like very comforting to me to know that this guy did it, you know? Yeah. And uh, I discovered him right before I started stand up. I wanted to do stand up so badly and I just didn't have the guts. And here was this guy whose language, English is his second language. You know, he immigrated to the States in his 30s. And he mm-hmm. was on television telling jokes. I was like, what the fuck? You know, like, what excuse do I have, right? It was that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, totally. But uh, I'm I'm so happy that you're doing, um, you know, you, you got your research going and that you have, like, your own kind of, uh, how do you say? You have a sense of agency with your methodology. Like, I think that's powerful. Mm. And I think that's dope as hell. You know, I think that's empowering. Thanks. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I think I think so, too. I think that like um, the the productivity part of it is hard because I feel very, very strongly about this methodology. And I feel so inspired when I like read the work that mm-hmm. I'm building into it. And then when I start putting together. Wow. wow. I'm sorry. I know that was fucking rude. <laughs> <laughs> that was rude as hell. Quite but on like, set. No, it's fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, but when I when I actually start putting things together, um, yeah, I get that sense of uh, insecurity because I feel like, well, who am I to declare like this is a really important thing to do? Like, who? Mm-hmm. What? What am I actually contributing that someone else isn't gonna like? Mm-hmm. Come up with? But mm-hmm. I mean, when it comes, I think that so many people are having that same thought Mm -hmm. that like it is better just to say the thing and then let somebody like argue with you or like learn Mm -hmm. later um i think it took me a really long time to to get to that 
that point um to stop being yeah. so sort of like self-doubting and precious about this stuff. oh my but, god like, if yeah. i think it's important and i can yeah like yell in your face about it then it's something yeah. that i should be yeah doing and writing and about I, you know you know what, what you just said is so like it's so true and it's like if somebody wants to argue with me about it later, like let, let that come. But even that is like, you created this imaginary enemy who's going to come and right. yell at you about it. Like the defenses are right. already there. Nobody's going to come and yell at you about it. You know, like right. they're going to yeah. be like, you created a methodology that I needed for my work. Thank you. You know, imagine that mm -hmm. some more, you know what I mean? Like yeah. the, the imposter syndrome, the insecurity, the self doubt, right? Those things are like always there, but there are ways to quiet them down, you know? Yeah. What's, and what's sad is how people find that stuff so comforting. It's like, that's your uh, comforting space to go to, to just be like, well, I'm a garbage and I'm just going to no. marinate in that. Like that's, <laughs> that's sad. That's so sad. As hell. That is sad as yeah. hell. And there's no God in that. No, 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 no. no there's um, there no God here. There yeah. is no God there. No, uh, no. Like, it, but that's real. And every single grad student has moments like that. And mm -hmm. that's okay. But it's like, there are ways to get out of it. You know? Yeah. The only person that it should matter to is yourself. Mm -hmm. If it's meaningful to you, then who fucking gives a shit? You know, somebody's opinion is just an opinion. It's not a mm -hmm. fucking axe in your head. It's not. Right. It's just yeah. their opinion. And there's no need to engage that opinion if it doesn't vibe with you. Like Maria Bamford said this and it helped me a lot. Um, I had this very unique opportunity to like have a one-on-one -on -one session with Maria Bamford one time. And uh, oh, awesome. yeah, it was pretty amazing. And, you know, I was asking, I was like, you know, sometimes I feel like a joke like this wouldn't land in certain spaces. And I was like, how do you deal with that? She's like, I bomb at the Laugh Factory. I bomb at the Hollywood Improv. I bomb at the Comedy Store. I bomb at all of these nightclubs. And she was like, and I don't care because what's funny to me is all that matters. If it makes me laugh, that's all I care about. And yeah. there's no way, there's no way you're going to please everybody. There's no way. And I was like, yeah. oh, thank you. I was, that's all I needed to hear. And I apply that to life and everything, you know, people come up to me sometimes. They're like, Grace, you're a bitch. I was like, so what? I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I know the truth. I know I'm not a bitch. You know what I'm saying? Right. You know, they might take yeah. it that way, but I know that I'm not trying to be personally a bitch to them. I know that if I come off as that is because I'm dealing with something or I'm protecting myself or I need to, I need to take care of me first. Why? I'm mm -hmm. the one that's responsible for me. So I say you do you. I think what you're doing is fucking amazing. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I, I think like, uh, I've been thinking a lot about like lowering the stakes of things. I think when people think about somebody arguing with them or bombing, like during yeah. their set or something, it's like, yeah. wow, the, the stakes are so high. What's going to happen is that people are going to laugh. At me. And I think that kind of saying, to, okay, like the worst thing that could, po is that the worst thing that could possibly happen? And like, how yeah. bad is that worst thing? Uh -huh. And like, in uh -huh. reality, like none of those worst things are actually the worst thing. Um, they don't matter. But they don't matter. Yeah. The you're man, still standing. The man with a capital and, M. Yeah, you're still standing. <laughs> you're still breathing. You're still gonna go somewhere mm -hmm. and get a cup of coffee. You're still. You still have mm -hmm. a house. You still have your health. You know, you're still standing. That in and of yeah. itself and is a were, miracle. You were still on stage that night where you wanted to be. So that yeah. it already happened. There you go. So the best Can't thing happened already. Away. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, Dave Chappelle said that when he was 15, he bombed and he was like, you know what, this isn't so bad. And after that, his fear went away, you know? Right. And it's like, like, everybody should just understand that, you know? This was amazing, Leah. Thank you so much for making the time. I yeah. learned a lot from our conversation we even, today. We didn't even talk about K-dramas at all. It's, that's not the point of these things. People come to listen to us listen, looking for K-drama shit, and it's like not even there. <laughs> you know what? Like, you're not going to learn anything about K-dramas today, but you will learn about self-actualization um, yeah. and escaping the Matrix. And the Sopranos. <laughs> I would I honestly would have worn my tracksuit. I so I, I yeah. wore my tracksuit that night to the theater, and I was like, I'm gonna be so uh, cool wearing my of course tracksuit. You did. I've got like my gold chain. My gold yes. chain. There was like yeah. no one there, um, and it was so sad. Um, it's okay. It's but it's so good. Yeah, it means something to me, man. And I see you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something to us. Um, I'm so glad that you invited me to do this. It was really such a like pleasure. It's always a, such a oh, pleasure fun. to see your name in my inbox, and I miss yeah. you, and I think about you. I miss you, you too, man. Yeah. I send you my my good my good heart vibes, my good thoughts. Yeah, you're the best. I send you my love as well. Thank you for making the time. <laughs> okay, I, I'm gonna ask you some flashcard questions. Okay. Based on the show Hometown Cha Cha Cha. Let's say you're a 33 year old okay. young woman who's a dentist in Seoul and you're making good money, but your boss tells you to uh, charge your patients more money and diagnose them with more serious illnesses, even though they don't need it, and procedure so that you could bring more money for the company. Okay. Uh, what do you do? I I won't do it. You'll say no. I will say no. That's it. I will. I'll, okay. I might try to get a little bit more money. Yeah, but I, I might do that. So I will um, team up with the patient. Yeah. With the patient is yeah. a hey. I will you know tell, uh, tell you the, the wrong diagnosis and you pay me have to pay me more uh -huh. <laughs> I will wait so how can I make more money oh so you would rig the system to yeah, advantage advantage and then somehow I don't know how I want to make the patients can get kicked back for me I get money but I was how, how can I do that <laughs> basically I want to destroy my boss okay that's my I want like I hate people dirty, you know, trying to make money off dirty scammers. scammers. Uh. So basically, I want to find a way to destroy my boss. Okay. <laughs> but I also want to take his money and sabotage, <laughs> sabotage him. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. All right, so let's say uh, you quit the job because yeah. you were like, you're unethical, so you quit. Mm -hmm. And that night you got home, you got home, you got drunk, mm -hmm. and you went online and you wrote all this bad shit about your boss. Uh -huh. And the next morning you realize what you've done. You also spent like $2,000 on a pair of shoes that you bought while you were drunk. What okay. do you do? First of all, yeah, I will return the $2,000 shoes. <laughs> and because, okay, so I wrote, you know, whatever I did online, I can't take it back. So, what am I gonna do? Uh, to get ready to be sued. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So, mm. uh, but 
I don't think I'm my, I mean, because I lost a job, right? So, maybe I'm not, uh, should I be afraid that he's going to come after me? Hmm. Or not? Okay, that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. You moved to a small town, a seaside village, because that woman basically talks shit about you to everybody and nobody's gonna hire you. You lived in Seaside Village, there are no dentists there, but big elderly community, and they all need dental work, so you're a big asset. But everybody's annoying, you know? Old ladies are like saying, why do you jog with like sports bra? You know, you have to put on more clothes and they're giving you shit. They're like, why aren't you married? You know, you should be married. They're saying all this shit to you and you hate it. So you you call your friend and you start complaining and like talking shit about everybody in town. It turns out you were next to a microphone, uh -huh. next to a loudspeaker, uh -huh. and everybody in town heard you talk shit about all of them. What do you do? <laughs> I think I'm gonna move to another town too. Move again. Like again. Uh, I don't think they will accept me again. And uh, I mean, if it's in Asia, small town, uh, oh, they're not. Yeah, they're forget not gonna accept. It. Over. Over. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. good. Alright, let's say um, in this small town there's a young man. He's like mid 30s. He's kind of attractive, right? One drunken night, the two of you guys, you, you kissed, okay? You switched. The next day, he acts as if nothing's happened. Mm -hmm. And he says he doesn't remember. Mm -hmm. What do you do? If you just a kiss? Mm -hmm. Just a kiss? Just a kiss. Oh, that's uh, He was, you know. Okay, I don't. I let it go because it's just a kiss, and he does doesn't remember. Fine, I I pretend that I don't remember either. <laughs> but if I sex, different story. <laughs> okay, okay. Do, you don't remember me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. This this man and you guys start dating. While you're dating, he has like all these. Um, secrets about his life you know he went to one of the best universities in seoul but he lives in this small town uh -huh. and he's like working as a hall monitor basically he just does small errands he doesn't really have a proper job okay he, he has no ambition uh -huh. he's a young man mm -hmm. and you ask him about his past but he doesn't tell you anything and one day you found a photograph in his bookshelf and you start looking at it but he snatches it mm -hmm. and he yells at you he's like why are you going through my shit what do you do First of all, I'll definitely dump him. <laughs> and I'm, I, I've dated that kind of guy, yeah. you know, because uh -huh. he's not there. I'm doing all the meditation and you yeah. know, working on myself. I'm up here and he's still uh, down here. So I'm sorry. We are not in the same level. Yeah. So sorry. I'm gonna grow by. Grow by. <laughs> okay. All right. Alright, last question. You find out that the reason why he was so secretive is because he used to be a financial advisor uh -huh. in Seoul. And he was a financial advisor to a very lower middle class man. And there was a financial crisis. And this lower class man, he took out a bank loan mm -hmm. and put it all in the stocks. Mm -hmm. He put his house up for collateral. Uh -huh. All of it went to zero. Uh -huh. And this man tried to kill himself mm -hmm. as a result. Mm -hmm. And while you were, you were feeling so guilty and while you were on your way to the hospital your uh -huh. best friend was driving uh -huh. and he, you guys cr crashed into a car got into a car accident and your best friend died and your best friend left behind his young wife and newborn son mm -hmm. and the guilt of that made, making you feel like it was all your fault mm -hmm. is the reason why I was why driving? you were not driving your okay. best friend was driving but it was okay. your car it's my car it was your car and then my best friend and 
died. Your best friend died. Okay. Left behind a young wife and a baby boy. Okay. And you lived, and you have all this pent up trauma and shame and guilt. And um, that's why you had all these secrets. That's why you couldn't tell your girlfriend anything. But one day, this, the son of that, that man who had the financial collapse, he shows up and he publicly shames you in front of the whole town. Says, you're the reason why my dad is lying up in bed. You're the reason why my dad tried to kill himself. You're the reason why my, fi my family's finances went down the drain. And this is your boyfriend that's being accused like this. What do you do? Oh, my boyfriend is accused. Being that of being this the, the reason that the family is here. yeah and the reason why that best friend died and died and um damn that's so <laughs> uh, I would I would yeah he messed up <laughs> he fucked up so but um I would tell him you know he's still he shouldn't commit suicide uh, because all the debts and all the stuff is not gonna follow him to the sure, other side. Sure. You know what I mean? So it's killing you, him, yourself because of financial reason. Yeah. Debt that's you know it's a pointless. It's yeah. a waste of you know because yeah, debt will stay here, not yeah. up up there. So yeah, but uh, it's hard. Do not feel guilty uh, after all of that. Yeah. Especially, yeah. Oof, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's, yeah, I, I feel sorry for him. Do you stay with him though? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, sorry. That's the end of the flashcard questions. Thank you. Thanks, I. <laughs> <Bye. laughs>